And we will be in Second Chronicles 23 and 24 today. Let's pray. Lord God, now as we open up your word and seek to learn from the lives of Jehoiada and Joash and others, Lord, help us to see the truth that's here, help us to understand the historical content, but also help us to know that there's way more going on and that there's a spiritual battle as well. Help us to see the things that are here, help us to understand them, and Lord God, we ask that you'd help us to take the truth home and apply it in our own lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Next week, uh, actually, you're going to have a big treat. Josh uh, is going to be speaking. I'm going to be out of the office for a few days, so he's uh, he's agreed to take over and uh, and teach. So I'm looking forward to actually to hearing him myself. He's going to be in Hebrews again. Uh, after that, just to kind of let you know where we're headed, we're going to hit two or three more of the kings uh, on the on the side of Judah. Um, on the other side, there's you know not there were no good kings in Israel, zero. In Judah, there was a few, and there were a few that were kind of good, uh, and then the rest of them were also uh, not good at all. So I'll just do three or four more weeks in the Kings, and then we'll be heading somewhere totally different. But I just wanted to take some time as we were looking at some of the historical things in the, la- in the last few months to see the truths that are there and then see the lessons. So the reason they're there are for the lessons, to try to learn from those lessons. I think I probably shared this before, but I was saved at a really young age, probably around five years old, and I don't remember much about it. I just remember that uh, I think I'd been at church and had heard something about hell and something about the cross and something about believing in Jesus, and, and my parents were missionaries in southern Mexico, and so we were always at the church and, and always hearing things were going on. And finally, at some point, something kind of clicked in there, and I, I, I needed to know more, and so I talked with mom and dad, and and I prayed and received Christ around that around that time. I believe I I believe, um, and, and and accepted Christ. Now the thing that struck me is that if I go back now and look at it, why did I believe at that time? Well, it was taught and I heard it. Yes, but my parents believed and they lived it. They were the ones that I saw every day. And were they perfect? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, but that's okay. You know, you you learn and you grow and you live through those kinds of things. And so I became a Christian because I was raised in a home where they believed the same thing and they also were teaching me those things. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes when you grow up in that kind of a setting, I remember especially when I got to the point of sharing testimonies, I thought, man, mine's so boring. You know, I got saved when I was five. That's it, I'm done. And and, and the reality is nothing could be further from the truth because God continues to work in you after that. And that's where I really started to see God doing things. And, uh, it, you know, we came home from Mexico after my parents had served around 10 years, and, and I struggled through that transition into American public schools and American culture. And uh, But it was in those years, too, from, from uh, junior high and high school that I started going to camps and started going to youth group and things like that. And I started to be challenged in my faith in ways I had never been challenged as a, as a youngster. There's only so much you can challenge a six, seven, eight-year-old with. But as I got further along, the more I realized, you know what, there's, there's more to this than just believing in Jesus. Yes, that's important. That's where I start. But I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower. I want to be someone who's committed to seeking Him. 
And that, that kind of process took place through my high school years. I thought through, what does that mean? What does that look like? And, and struggled with some of those things in my life. Um, now, please understand, when I'm saying I, I came to a point where I was, really knew I needed to make a commitment, I'm not talking about a second experience of salvation. Not at all. I'm saved by grace through faith when I believed in Jesus. Now I'm coming to the point where I'm realizing, you know what? There's more to this, and God wants me to be all in, if you want to put it that way. Committed to Him. Now, not that I wasn't saved before, I was, but I didn't understand all the things that I had come to grips with by the time I was in high school. And forty years later, I'm still beginning to work on some of those things. I still am. Now, as we look at Joash today, one of the questions that kept coming back to me was, how can you start like this and end like this? And, and, and you look at it and you go, what happened? And that's what I want us to take some time studying today. I mean, Joash was the last of all of the descendants of David to survive Athaliah, his grandmother, killing off all of the other kids and everybody. And he was hidden by Jehoshaphat, his aunt. Um, and he was kept safe in the temple by Jehoshaphat and her husband Jehoiada, the high priest. And he was kept there for six years, kept safe during that time frame. But understand, we've been talking about this all along. The whole point of the king in Judah was that he was supposed to be a descendant of David. Now, Joash is the last one. Okay, understand, he was saved and very, very purposely, very specifically by God protected. And, and at some point, he's going to rise up and be on the throne. And, and then from him will come others who will, who will be in that line of David. So... As we've been going through the study, um, last week we talked briefly about Athaliah taking over and, and in order to do so, killing all her grandchildren and, and others. And um, she missed she missed Joash. So seven years later, verse 1, chapter 23. In the seventh year of Athaliah's reign, Jehoiada the priest decided to act. And so he summoned his courage, and he made a pact or kind of a deal with five army commanders. Now, these guys then, he sends them out all over Judah, all over Jerusalem, and he, he really is, has, is trusting them big time because what he's saying is, I need you to go get the Levites and others, and I need you to sneak them into the temple. Bring them here. And then that's really what he wants them to do. <clears throat> And so these men travel, verse 2, throughout Judah, summoning Levites, leaders of towns. They gathered at the temple, verse 3, and here it says, They made a solemn pact with Joash, the young king. Jehoiada said to them, Here is the king's son. And he sort of gave them all of the history and how they knew that this Joash was a descendant of his father who was killed. So <clears throat> here we go. He presents him as king and... At that point, Jehoiada says, The Lord has promised that a descendant of David will be our king. Now, he's going back to the promises of God, isn't he? He's going back to the things that he learned from about Abraham and, and about Moses and eventually David and the covenant that God made with David. David had received the promises of God that his line would be the line through which the Messiah would come. Look at 2 Samuel seven sixteen. Your house, and, and this is God speaking to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 
And so when Jehoiada the priest says, okay, this is in the line of David, as this young man is in the line of David, what he's saying is we need to protect him and we need to get him raised up and then we need to have him have children so that the line of David can continue because the Messiah is going to come through this line. And sometimes we forget as we're going through, you know, this one person got killed and they killed all of these off. And we forget that there's still this line that's going all the way through. The Messiah was supposed to come from David. And so we see that continuation going on here. Now in verses 8 to 10, he sets up a security for the coronation they want to have with Joash, uh, the last of David's descendants. In <clears throat> verse 11, Jehoiada and his sons... Keep that in thought. It was not just Jehoiada the high priest, but Jehoiada and his own sons brought Joash, brought out Joash, the king's son, placed the crown on his head, presented him with a copy of God's law. Isn't that awesome? So here, we're going to crown you, but you need to understand your kingdom and your country needs to be based on this. And they gave him a portion of God's law. And they anointed him and proclaimed him king, and everyone shouted, Long live the king. Yeah, it's taking place in the temple, in the temple courtyard. Now understand, Athaliah has been in, in control, reigning for seven years, and Athaliah had a temple of Baal built in Jerusalem, and the temple of God was a place that uh, you didn't want to be. Not when she was around. So Athaliah hears the shouts of, Long live the king. She heads down to see what's going on. She comes to the temple and she sees the young boy, with, you know, he's there, and they're shouting, long live the king to him. And so at that point, she comes in, and she screams treason, and she's all upset. And uh, Jehoiada says, take her outside the temple and execute her. And so they did. Then Jehoiada made a covenant. This is really important, because this is the, this is the preacher-pastor part of Jehoiada right here. Okay? So he, he made a covenant between himself and and the king, and the people. They say, hey, we are all in this together. We're going to make this covenant. We're going to renew the covenant that the nation of Israel has had with God since the very beginning. Remember when Moses had them all take part of that covenant ceremony? Yes, we will. We will. And that was renewed many times. And that's what Jehoiada is doing now. So we are going to renew this covenant that we as a people will follow God and only God. He's the one that we're going to follow. Um, so that that covenant made first through Moses and then passed on down is is what what they what they took place and what they did. Now while Athaliah reigned, Jehoiada the high priest and all the Levites had to have been in hiding in some way. Uh, they certainly weren't in the temple having services and doing the things that they normally would. Matter of fact, it sounds like as you read through that time frame that the temple was pretty. Uh, just nothing much going on. It was a still. Um, <clears throat> and so Jehoiada now calls the people back to the Word of God, calls them back to the law, calls them back to following and serving only after God. Um, and they all renewed that covenant. And, and, <laughs> and then, what did they do? They went down in verse 17 and tore down the temple of Baal. That's an appropriate response. There can't be Baal and God at the same time. It's one or the other. And so the the people, they made this covenant with God, with the king, and they said, okay, now let's take care of the other problem we've got. And they tore down the temple of Baal, destroyed the altars, and they killed the, the priest of Baal. 
Um, now, during that time, this has taken some time. People are sent out to take care of all of that. And at that same time, Jehoiada is beginning to get things going in the temple. Look at verse 18. Jehoiada now put the priests and Levites in charge of the temple of the Lord, following all the directions given by David. So he, he's been the student. He understands what David had set up way back. And so he's saying to them, listen, we're taking care of the first problem. We're getting rid of the temple of Baal. The second thing we need to do is put the house of God in order, get people going and functioning and serving as priests and Levites like they're supposed to. So he's doing all of this. As the high priest, he has that authority and the ability to move people forward in those areas. And so he says, listen, we need to be involved in in the sacrifices and we need to preserve the law of God. We need to sing praise and rejoice as David taught us to. So now once everything is ready, they've destroyed the temple of Baal. He's gotten the temple, temple kind of situated and up and running again. Once everything's going, they take Joash to the palace. Verse 20, then the commanders, nobles, rulers, and all of the people of the land escorted the king from the temple of the Lord and they went through the upper gate and into the palace and they seated the king on the royal throne. So all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was peaceful because Athaliah had been killed. That's a strong statement, isn't it? This lady reigned for seven years and it was terror for most people who love God. Now, question, how can a seven-year-old reign as king? And the answer is he can't. <laughs> Not a chance was, was he actually calling the shots during this time frame. And that's why it's really amazing that we have Jehoiada. Jehoiada was his adoptive father anyway. Jehoiada is the one who raised him along with his aunt and, and adopted and brought him right into his family. And so he was being trained all along, even though he didn't realize it in the first seven years, being trained in the things of God. And now he's king, but Jehoiada is actually the, the regent, if you will, or the person who, to whom everyone comes. He's the one who's actually ruling side by side with, jo- with Joash. <clears throat> and Joash, somewhere down the road, is going to take over and become king. Several de- decades at least went by. Um, we see some things in, in the, the numbers. We don't have an exact timeline, but it's, it, it's, it appears as we look at Kings and we look at these chapters that at least 20 years go by before Joash actually begins to reign by himself. Now, just some, just some implications here. As I, I read through this first chapter, and, and it ends kind of on a high note. You've got just jo, jo, oh, excuse me, Joash, who was protected and cared for, and brought and put on the on the throne of the temple, and you've got a godly man, Jehoiada, who is now saying, "Let's let's follow God as a nation," and the, everything's going in the temple again. Verse three, uh, under the implications, Jehoiada said to them, "Here's the king's son. The time has come for him to reign. The Lord promised." So he's going back to the promises of God that a descendant of David will be our king. And, and as the priest, he knew the scriptures. He understood what had been promised. He understood what had been said. He knew the Davidic covenant. He knew all of those things. And, and so that's why he was so careful in making sure that Joash lived. And he's thinking down the road, how are we going to protect him? How are we going to keep him going? How are we going to get him married and have family? All those things are part of the process that's going on in, jo- jo- <clears throat> in um, Jehoiada's mind. Um, now, just so that we understand that when he's saying about the descendant will always be on the throne, we're going to go all the way forward to John the Baptist at his birth. 
Remember, his dad's been silent for nine months. And finally, when they name John, Zechariah is finally able to speak. And in Luke 1, 67, it says this, Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Okay, so he's saying this is what's coming. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. And then eventually he talks about how his own son and prophesies his son will go before this Messiah. But think about this prophecy that he's saying. What's he saying? We know that it's the line of David. That's where it's going to come from. That's where the Messiah is going to come from. And that's what he said. A mighty Savior is going to come. He's going to be a royal servant in the line of David. Just as been promised. And so Zechariah was, again, a priest who knew the Word of God and understood what was going on. He could go all the way back to Abraham and say, Oh, yeah, I remember we studied how Abraham, uh, God called him and said, I want you to leave here. I want you to go over here to, to Canaan. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And, oh, by the way, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And many people see that as the very first promise of the Messiah coming through um, through Israel and later on specifically through David. I was just thinking about promises and and, um, it just jumped me into some things that I was reading and thinking. There's a lot of promises that God made to Israel and, and then there are promises that he makes generally. And God's promises are real and they should encourage and strengthen us. Um... I'm not a big fan of going out there and saying, okay, I'm just going to put a whole thing of promises of God on the board here and I'm going to throw my dart and then that'll be my promise for the day. You know, I, I, if that works for you, fine. But uh, I love coming across them as I'm studying and reading scriptures. I'm having my devotions, that kind of thing. And I just want to share just some of the promises of God that, uh, that I came across this week. Uh, the general promise are promises that are made to all believers in every age. Okay, so a general promise made to believers is for all believers. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, so we'll forgive our sins. That's made to every single believer. When we sin, when we stumble, when we fall, we can be restored in our fellowship with God by confessing that sin and getting back in step with him. So that's a general promise. There are specific promises, and I'm using one very narrow here, but to show that in some cases God makes a promise, but is to one person. And, and we have to be very careful when it's a specific promise, saying, oh, I'm going to grab that one and claim it. And I guarantee you won't want to claim this one. Um, <clears throat> who is this? Here she is. Simeon is prophesying. He's holding the baby Jesus in his arms, and he says a number of different things. And then at the very end, he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, that wasn't a promise to all mothers. It wasn't a promise to all Marys. There was a promise to this Mary in this place about her son. And so again, as we look at promises, if something comes across and God is saying, I want you to know this, that's great, but just keep in mind that we need to be very careful in in taking those promises and saying, I'm demanding that God do this. We shouldn't do that anyway. Promise of God, He's going to fulfill those uh, in His time and His way. Now just some of God's promises are conditional Okay, some promises are conditional. Sometimes we forget this. Um, if you confess your sins, then I will forgive your sins and cleanse you. 
Okay, that's a conditional promise. Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's, again, a conditional promise. Uh, then we have, <clears throat> we're given promises that are given to us to help us learn to submit to his will and to trust him. Um, I, I think that's what's happening in Hebrews here. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Hard words, strong words sometimes, aren't they? So, you know, be content with what you have. Don't love money. Why? Because God has promised, no matter how much money you have, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And that's a great thing. And I love the way he puts that in there. This is, this is one of those promises that's, it's kind of big and full and it's there to help us say, okay, I want to learn to be content and I want to learn to live with what, with what God gives me because I, I'm thrilled at the fact that he has promised he will never leave me nor forsake me. So whether I'm really doing well financially or I'm struggling to even pay the bills, it doesn't matter. He's with me at all times. And then there's another one. This one's wrong. The reference I put is wrong in your notes. Uh, the, the reference should be Philippians 1.6. <clears throat> God's promises will be fulfilled in our lives if we, even if we don't know when, where, and how. And I think this is all kinds of things you could tie in here, but this verse really struck me. Um, Paul writing the church in Philippi says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue that work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. I love that because, you know, on, on a lot of levels, yes, I need to I need to get up and pray and I, I need to spend time with God on my own. All those things are important. But the reality of all this is, is it's God that's doing this work. God's the one that's bringing me along. If I'm submitting and surrendering myself to Him more and more, He's the one that will continue working and finishing me and making me more and more like Jesus until the time when he calls me home. And then I will be like Jesus because I'll see him as he is. Now, someone asked one time, what is the greatest promise of God, or the greatest promises of God? And you could make all kinds of great lists here, but I think these two, and this isn't original with me, but I think these two are the most important. Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. That was a promise of God, wasn't it? Don't eat from that tree. Uh, they did. <laughs> and sin entered the world, and with sin came death. Romans 8, 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Love that verse. And I love it even more in the Phillips paraphrase. He puts it this way. No condemnation now hangs over the head of those who are in Christ Jesus. You got no clouds up there. You got nothing hanging over you. You are in Christ. When you believe you are in Him and He is in you, what an incredible thing. What an incredible thing. And I think you can sum both of those promises up in one place. In the same verse, Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But, don't you love it? But, guess what? There's good news. And the good news is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So two amazing promises. God promises that judgment and death will come to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. 
And he promises that everyone who does will be forgiven and they are in Christ. And they have the wonders of having no condemnation hanging over them. They have eternal life. God's promises of his presence are really powerful. There's a couple more here. John 16:33. He's speaking to the disciples in the upper room just hours before he's arrested and goes to the cross. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And we say, hey, in me you're going to have peace. I want you to know that. There's a bunch of stuff coming, but in me you will have peace. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Hey guys, not gonna, not gonna play games here. In this world, yep, you're gonna have some hard times. You're gonna have some really difficult times. Some of you are gonna be martyred. Some of you are gonna be imprisoned. In this world, you're gonna have hard times. But, take heart. I have overcome the world. What an incredible thing. <clears throat> That's why brothers and sisters of ours, in the world today, who are in places where it is unsafe to even proclaim the name of Christ, are okay doing that from time to time. And at times they are caught and they go to their deaths and they go to their deaths knowing, knowing that they were going to wake up in the presence of the Lord. In this world, you will have difficulty. You will have tribulation. You will have struggles. But don't worry about it. I've overcome the world. I've overcome the world. Now, I mean, I just thought I would share my go-to. If you want to know what my go-to verse <clears throat> is in my deepest struggles, and I'm seeing <clears throat> things happen, especially to other people, and I pray and I don't seem to have any answers, and I look at God's Word and, <clears throat> and I wonder what's going on. I remember Lamentations. I remember Jeremiah probably looking out over the city of Jerusalem that's been destroyed. And he says, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. I mean, he could have said, God, it's, it's done, it's over, what's going on? But he didn't. He'd been part of that whole process. He'd been part of the prophecies against the, the city. He says, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Now, if you want to know why I say good morning and I never say good afternoon or good evening, right there in the verse. (laughs) It's a reminder to me. Every time I say it, the mercies of God are brand new every day. Let's jump into chapter 24. Here's where it goes tragically bad. Joash was seven years old, verse 1 of chapter 24. When he became king, he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother was Zibiah from Beersheba. Joash did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord throughout the lifetime of Jehoiada the priest. Okay, so we're being given some very specific information 
Uh, Jehoiada chose two wives from after all. You know, this was the guy that raised him, kind of his uh, adoptive father, and, and who was watching over him and protecting and training him to become king, uh, being the king in his place for a while. Jehoiada uh, chose two wives for him, and it says he had sons and daughters. Again, so it's really important to remember uh, the point of, of this was to make sure that the next king would also be in the line of David. Um, so for a period of time, and, and, and at one point, it says in verse 4, or sometime later, and it's after he's had sons and daughters, after a period of time, Joash decides he wants to repair the temple. And so uh, he summoned the priest and said, hey, guys, there is this thing called the temple tax. I know about this, and, and we're supposed to send people out and collect it. If they don't bring it, we're supposed to go get it. And so he tells the Levites to get going and do that, but the Levites don't act. They don't do anything. Um, and so at that point he calls for Jehoiada and he and Jehoiada have a talk but uh, this is this is one of those things where it hadn't gone on for a long period of time the temple is over 100 years old they hadn't done any repairs on it when when um, <clears throat> Athaliah was queen we find out in verse 7 um, what they did to the temple the followers of wicked Athaliah broke into the temple of God and they used all of the dedicated things from the temple of the Lord to worship the images of Baal. So they ransacked the temple, took anything of value that they wanted that they could melt down and use in ways uh, in the sacrifices of Baal. So the temple was in desperate need. It needed to be upgraded. It needed to be uh, built strong again. And so uh, the Levites hadn't gone out and done it, so the decision is made in verse 8, and that the king is the one who ordered the trust to be made, but I'm sure Jehoiada was the one that was working this through with him. And so they make a big chest, they put it by the door to the temple, and then they did this. They sent a proclamation out to the, all of the people in the country, reminding them of this tax that they were supposed to do every year. You pay a temple tax, and you pay this tax in order that we can keep the temple functioning and doing the things that it's supposed to do. Now, that was plan B. His first plan was send the Levites out to go get it. That didn't work because they didn't go. So they put this chest there. And verse 9 tells us the proclamation was sent telling the people what to do. And um, verse 10 then reminds us this pleased all the leaders of the people and they gladly brought their money and they filled the chest. They just kept filling it up and they kept taking it and giving it to the people so they could continue to build and rebuild the temple. Um, Verse 13 says... They restored the temple of God according to its original design and strengthened it. So again, you've got Josiah and, and uh, Jehoiada still in the picture. And, and with Jehoiada and, and Josiah together, they're an incredible combination. The temple is fixed up. Um, they are even have some money left over. They can start making some of those implements again for the temple to, to be used there. Verse 15, Jehoiada lived to be a very old age finally dying at 130. He was buried among the kings in the city of David because he had done so much good. Isn't that incredible? He had done so much good in Israel for God and His temple. He had made sure the line of the Messiah was protected. That's part of what he was trying to do in raising up Joash. So God preserved Jehoiada for a long time, longer than most of the people around in that time frame. And, uh, of course, his, his wife was related 
to the king and you know, he did everything he could to raise Joash to the point where Joash, when he took over, would be a good king. Verse 17. After Jehoiada's death, the leaders of Judah came and bowed before the king and persuaded him to listen to their advice. And here's this great advice. They decided to abandon the temple of the Lord And because of this sin, divine anger fell on Judah and Jerusalem. And yet the Lord sent prophets. And so you've got, uh, we're not sure how much time goes by here. But this young, this young king, probably now in his thirties, had been raised by Jehoiada and, and shown what it meant to be a, a man of God, shown what the, what the temple was all about and all the sacrifices. And it's an incredibly short period of time after the death of Jehoiada that he abandons the temple. The very temple that he had helped restore under the help and encouragement of Jehoiada. Verse 20. And again, this is where it comes. You start reading this stuff and you just your heart should break. The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. So he's one of the guys that brought Joash out and put him in the kingdom. Because it says Zechariah and his sons brought him out. So Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest, stood before the people and said, This is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands and keep yourselves from prospering? They had already had a chance to see that prosperity came when you obeyed God. That's the way it was in that time frame. God had said, you do what I tell you to do. You obey my laws and you behave in these ways and I will bless you. I'll bless you physically. I'll bless you economically. It was an incredible thing that Israelites could count on. And he says, why is it that you've thrown that away? And he says, <clears throat> this is what God says. I'm sorry, move down just a little further. You have abandoned the Lord, and now, here's the word, He has abandoned you. You walked away from God? Guess what? He just walked away from you. Wow. He walked away from the financial blessings and the physical blessings not to mention the spiritual, which is way more important. <clears throat> the saddest part in all of this is that uh, Joash is not at all excited about this young man that he grew up with, and um, he tells the people to stone him right there in the courtyard of the temple. And they do. Zechariah said, God has abandoned you, and uh, it was right. Very shortly thereafter, in verse 23, 24, the Arameans attacked. They were a much smaller army than the, the army of, of Israel. And yet it says that the Lord helped them to conquer. <laughs> so the, the Lord was on the Aramean side because he had abandoned Israel, because they had abandoned him. And they came in and they took all of the stuff from the temple and they did all kinds of stuff, and they uh, even injured Joash. Um, after that, and this is, the, again, you read some of the stuff and you go, oh my goodness, two of the officials of, <clears throat> of Joash's who knew Zechariah and knew Jehoiada came over and uh, assassinated Joash. He was 
you know, may have recovered, but not anymore. Verse 25, he was buried in the city of David, but not in the royal cemetery. Jehoiada was buried in the royal cemetery for all the good that he did for God's people and God's temple. Joash was not. Joash was not. And as I read, it's like tale of two cities if you want. Or, you know, the, the good news, bad news. I mean, it's, you know, really good stuff happening, chapter 23, and then some of the horrible, worst stuff in chapter 24. What happened to Joash? What an incredible waste. Verse 2, And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. That's a great statement about Jehoiada, a horrible statement about Joash. Perhaps the faith wasn't really ever his. Perhaps he was just kind of always with Jehoiada and, and believing what Jehoiada did. Maybe it never sunk into him that he needed to make that step of belief himself. He needed to become a, a follower, a devoted follower of the, of the God of Israel. And maybe that never happened. We don't know. We, I, I'm honest there, we don't know. But it certainly does not seem like this is someone who had any kind of spiritual reality going on in his life. Once the godly influence was gone, I mean, he went fast down, very, very fast. Is it possible that the faith of the God of, the God of Israel never was his? It's, it's, it's possible. Earlier, before the kings, in fact, in the time of Joshua, Joshua 24, Joshua knows that he's nearing the end of his life, and he's gathered the people together. And he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. And then look at what he says. This is, these are people who have gone from Egypt, saw a whole generation die. They finally have come into the promised land. And he says to them, Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river, way back there in Ur, and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. Get rid of that stuff. I mean, he's telling the people of God this. And apparently some of them were still kind of carrying along these little household gods. And then he said, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose country you are living. And so again, he's saying, this is your choice. You have to make this choice. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that was the challenge to the people of Israel. And of course, if you read down, they all, they all say, and they're in agreement, yes, yes, we're, we agree with you. We want to we wanna serve the Lord. We want our houses to serve the Lord too. Now, again, let's just think this through a little bit. Joshua could make the statement for himself, and he could teach and raise his children and encourage his grandchildren to, to be able to live and believe that same thing. For me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And if that got passed down to every single generation, and every single generation grabbed a hold of it as hard as Joshua did, then it would keep going. Um, but each person didn't do that. Now you get down to Jehoiada. Jehoiada certainly was one who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he stood for it and lived for it. Then when it came time for Joash to say it, he couldn't. And he didn't. Someone once said, God does not have any grandchildren. I think that's right. When someone believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they become a son or a daughter of God. They believe and 
they become. In Joshua's case, many did not believe, and it didn't get passed down. Each person had to say for themselves, yeah, me, my house, we will serve the Lord. Judges 2, 8 and 10, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And look at verse 10. After that whole generation, that's Joshua and the people who, who knew God and followed him and who had fought for the land, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How tragic. That's just sad. <clears throat> my grandparents, uh, on my mom and my dad's side, all were the first to believe in Jesus Christ. And both my mom and dad grew up in homes where the Word of God was honored, where they believed and uh, and were, were taught the things of God on a regular, consistent basis. So because my grandparents did that, both of my parents grew up in a home that knew the, knew what God was all about and wanted them. And so my mom and dad came to Christ in that in that setting. Uh, my mom and dad did their best as they lived for the Lord and, and, uh, as they raised me and my two, do- two sisters. And, um, as, as we were growing, we were able to see the reality of their life and see, no, they weren't perfect, but they, they loved God and they loved His Word and they loved God's people. And so, it really was no surprise that at some point I believed in Jesus Christ as a result of their example and their impact of their, <clears throat> of their lives on me. When I believed that Jesus died for me, I was no longer under condemnation because I knew I was in Christ Jesus. It took time for me to go beyond that because I was really young. At some point then, I remember in my high school years coming to grips with Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As I began to understand what that was what that meant little steps at a time i began to realize you know what i want to follow god this way this is what i want to be the reality in my life and hopefully carol and i have passed that stuff on to our three youngins that as they have grown they've realized hey the things of god are critical, and how I live in this world in response to God is the most important thing. Each person, each generation must choose, how am I going to live? Am I going to follow the Lord or not? Uh, I can't make anyone be a Christian. I can't make anyone follow uh, with, with, with Joash. I mean, could anybody have thought that what he did later was going to actually happen? I mean, he looked like he was... You know, right there with Jehoiada the whole time. But something was going on in that heart, and none of it was good. And you see him crash and take a whole nation down. And so each of us, each generation, must choose. How am I going to 
How am I going to live? And uh, we can take the prayer of Joshua if we'd like. I choose to offer myself to God as a living sacrifice, and as for me and my house, I, I will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges. We pray that as we live, that we could be like Jehoiada, like Joshua, that we would live in such a way that others, our own family and others as well, would say, man, that's how I want to live. I want to follow Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.